Hi, everyone. It's Kate Graham here, host of Canada 2020's No Second Chances podcast about women in Canada's most senior political roles. Welcome to The Recovery Project, an initiative launched by Canada 2020, Global Progress, and the Institute of Fiscal Studies and Democracy at the University of Ottawa. The Recovery Project is about sparking needed dialogue about what the path to recovery from COVID will look like in Canada and beyond. We're glad you're here for the conversation. Today, we're gonna tackle a big topic, the intersection of gender and the COVID crisis. In Canada, COVID has disproportionately affected women. 56% of our cases to date have been women. And the economic fallout is often described as a she session because many of the hardest hit sectors are female dominated. And even now, as we move into recovery, the most recent data shows that men are returning to work at twice the rate of women. But there have also been some positives. COVID has put a spotlight on female leadership, including here in Canada with politicians and chief medical officers of health, and as we watch how women are excelling as leaders around the world. So is COVID reshaping our notions of female leadership? And how do we ensure that our recovery efforts also move us towards gender equality? I'm delighted to be joined today by a truly remarkable woman, a lifelong champion of gender equality and someone with firsthand knowledge of the international landscape of women in political leadership. Mary Robinson served as the seventh president of Ireland from 1990 to 1997. Following her presidency, she served as the United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights and then formed Realizing Rights, the Ethical Globalization Initiative, which included a mandate of strengthening women's leadership. Among many other commitments, she's also a founding member of the Council of Women World Leaders. President Robinson, it is an honor to speak with you today. Thank you. I'm happy to take part. Wonderful. So let's start by giving Canadians a chance to learn a thing or two about you that they may not already know. So you were the first woman to serve as the president of Ireland, and you've had an enduring career fighting for gender equality and human rights. So where did your passion for justice come from? Uh, what motivated your career in public service? I often explain that it started very early growing up in the west of Ireland because uh, I was the only girl wedged between four brothers, two older and two younger. So of course I had to care about human rights and gender equality <laughs> using my elbows. And I was lucky because our parents were both medical doctors. It wasn't a political family. And they persuaded me over and over again that I had the same value and the same opportunities as my brothers. But nothing in the wider Irish society was telling me that. You know, mm. girls couldn't be altar boys. We were a very Catholic family. Uh, I had to wear a scarf in church. I, my uh, vision of who was making decisions in the country, they were all men. Uh, I didn't have any sense that uh, I was equal, but my parents were trying very hard to persuade me. And so then what led to your uh, decision to pursue a career in public service? Well, I started with law. Uh, I wanted to study law as an instrument for social change so that uh, I could take cases that would make a difference um, in removing discriminations and unfairness in Irish law, which there was a lot at the time. And uh, I was lucky enough 
uh, having graduated from the law school in Trinity in 1967 to be given a, um, a fellowship to Harvard University to study law there in the law school. And uh, that was a, an extraordinary year. I mean, I'm the class of 1968, which for a lot of young people is so far back that they can't even imagine it. Hmm. Uh, it was an extraordinary time of change, like now, because the young Americans that I was meeting in Harvard were criticizing what they called an immoral war, the war in Vietnam. They were trying to avoid the draft. Uh, Martin Luther King was assassinated in, Jan in April of that year, April 68. And uh, just after I graduated, Robert Kennedy was assassinated. But what I brought back from that year was a real sense that young people could make a difference because the young people that I was close to in the Harvard Law School were planning to go to uh, poverty programs in the southern part of the country or even civil rights, the civil rights movement in the, in the south. And, you know, we talked about human rights, we talked about law, we talked about changes, etc. How we, you know, it was, it was a very open discussion. And um, it almost reminds me of the Black Lives Matter now, you know, the, the incredible sense that we could talk about anything and that mm. life could change. And uh, so when I came back, I was full of what my husband-to-be a few years later uh, called my Harvard humility, uh, which caused me to uh, stand for the Irish Senate uh, in 1969 uh, against um, elderly male professors uh, for the university seats. And I got elected at the age of 25 and then went on to practice law and be involved in the Senate and also teach law in Trinity College and get married in December 1970 and have three children and on from there. Wow, phenomenal. <laughs> uh, very impressive. Uh, so for most of us, uh, the last four months with COVID have meant a pretty profound change in our lives. Just out of curiosity, what have the past four months been like for you? I've been somebody who was probably traveling a bit too much because I was working for climate justice and I was so worried that we weren't going to have enough ambition leading to the next conference on climate, which was to be in Glasgow this year. It's now been postponed, as you know, to next year. But, you know, in January, uh, I was almost in despair, but I'm also chair of the elders that Nelson Mandela brought together in 2007. And we're supposed to bring hope and you know, encouragement. And yet I wasn't feeling encouraged because I felt, you know, we're not going to be able to do what the scientists told us we have to do. And that is uh, ensure that we work towards a world of 1.5 degrees warming and don't go above that. And the scientists said in October 2018 that we needed to reduce global carbon emissions by 45% by 2030. And yet carbon emissions were going up since the Paris Agreement. So how were we going to do this? And then COVID hit. The terrible pandemic with terrible health consequences initially and then economic consequences. And in many ways, I see COVID in two ways. I see the negative COVID and it's very real. COVID is like a mirror that exacerbates all the inequalities of the moment. Um, the inequalities of uh, poverty, race, gender, being a migrant or an asylum seeker, being a person with disabilities, 
uh, in the developing world, being a girl out of school who knows she'll never get back to school and being pushed into early child marriage, all of these inequalities and the intersectionality between those inequalities. And that for me is important because that intersectionality is a very feminist idea, the connections, the layers of inequality that you have to look at. Um, so that's the negative side. The positive side is that we've all been reflecting more. And in that reflection, we see that COVID has shown that collective human behavior can actually make a difference. It's the only thing that is protecting us from the pandemic. We don't have a vaccine. So if we didn't comply with lockdown, if we didn't comply with social distancing, if we didn't comply with washing our hands much more regularly, etc., we would not protect ourselves. We would not protect the care workers and the health workers um, that we must protect, etc. So that's one thing. What does that mean when we come out of this about consumer behavior, about, um, about collective coming together to make change? Um, that sense of a, an empowerment is, is somehow there. Secondly, government matters. And I know we're going to come to women-led governments, so we'll park that. Thirdly, science matters. And that's really important. I mean, to see uh, governments uh, making public announcements side by side with their health experts and formulating their policy in accordance with the health advice, as they should, means that we understand the importance of that advice and that science matters. We now need to listen to the climate scientists in the same way and take as seriously what they tell us um, as we come out of um, this pandemic. And then the last thing I would mention, because I could mention some other things, but the last thing I'd mention is that compassion matters. We're seeing a neighborliness, an empathy, which wasn't there before. We're seeing it in all countries, I think, uh, an openness to those who are suffering more. I mean, the, the last thing I would say is about COVID-19, I've heard other people say it is not the great leveler, not at all. It exacerbates the inequalities, but it means that we're all suffering a bit. We're all having a different lifestyle, basically. And therefore, we're, we're more open to the problems of the other. We're more open with more empathy. Um, and I know this because I've been talking for the last 15 or more years about climate justice. And when I would talk about where it affects most, the poorest countries, the small island states, the indigenous peoples, people would look at me and their eyes would glaze over and they'd say, no, but that's not me. You know, I just, I could feel there wasn't that sense of a connection and solidarity. I think it's more possible now. Well, I'd love to um, pick up on these comments and turn to uh, the question of leadership and specifically female political leaders around the world. So I'm, I'm sure that you saw this. There's been lots of commentary about uh, how women leaders have been excelling during this crisis. There was a new study from the European Centre for Disease Prevention and Control just two weeks ago that found that countries led by men have suffered six times more COVID deaths than countries led by women. So what, what do you make of that? What do you think explains a pattern that strong? Certainly, I have repeated uh, the list, and you know, it's, 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 it's an impressive list of women-led countries from Angela Merkel and uh, the prime ministers of Norway, Denmark, Finland, Iceland in Europe, to uh, Jacinda Ardern in New Zealand, to the president of uh, Taiwan. Um, Women-led 
countries that took decisions early, tough decisions um, about lockdown because they listened to the science and then they brought their people with them by talking it through in a very open, honest way um, that this had to be done. It, we had to protect elderly people and those more vulnerable. We had to protect the health workers, the care workers. And um, there's no doubt that, uh, you know, insofar as government matters, it has to be good government. And in this instance, it is uh, notable that women, women-led governments um, have done well. Uh, some m- m- men-led governments also have done well. Um, but we've also had the egos, and they're the ones that cause the problems, the uh, narcissist, the egos, the uh, populace, um, the, those who want to oversimplify, who don't want to listen to the science, etc. And uh, I think that has accentuated um, some of the problems of a macho male approach. Um, it's not all um, male leaders. I mean, I'm in favor of a good balance uh, between men and women in government at all levels. Um, I'm in favor of 50% cabinets. I'm in favor of quotas. I'm in favor of everything that can lead to um, a better equality of result because both uh, sexes bring their strengths and bring their uh, way of doing. But I'm glad that women-led governments have been perceived rightly to have done well because they have um, they have uh, been problem-solving. They've been collaborative. They've listened. Uh, and th- th- these are the qualities of women's way of leading. It's a leadership that serves the people you're leading in a problem-solving uh, way that understands that when there is a really serious issue, you listen to the experts. And it means that you have the humility to say, I don't know the answer to this, but I'm going to listen to those who do, who, those who do know. And, you know, it's, it's that kind of approach. And also, uh, women leaders uh, have a quality that you don't see as much in uh, men who lead, and that is the quality of self-doubt. Now, that might surprise you, but I think that's a valuable quality in a leader to doubt your own ability in a way that makes you want to listen more to the advice of others and the wisdom of others in order to do better. It's not a doubt that is negative, it's a doubt that's positive. And when I've met with my women leader friends uh, in so many contexts, I'm very struck by the number of times the conversation, um, it's a private conversation, maybe between 10 or 20 of us in a room on our own, maybe with a glass of wine in our hand. And it's often about, you know, I wish I'd done this better. You know, I know that I could have actually done that better. You know, I don't hear, ever hear men in a conversation like that, having that kind of, in a room like that, having that kind of conversation. But women do over and over again. Hmm. Absolutely fascinating. So th- this idea of self-doubt, thinking to, you know, the time when you were serving as president, for example, or your many other leadership roles, uh, they seem, at least from the outside, to be roles that require you to seem like you, you know, you're in full command and you, uh, you know, you know what you need to do and you're able to project that confidence. Uh, was it an uncomfortable thing to be sitting with that self-doubt? Uh, is this something that you discovered after being president or was it something that you were comfortable with while you were in that role? No, I, I think it's, my answer is um, sort of yes and no. Um, it was uncomfortable, but it also, I knew was valuable. Uh, I did disguise it, as you do. Uh, So 
when I was elected president of Ireland, I was a non-executive president, but there was a great expectation of what I would do because I was the first woman and I'd run on a very active program. I'd been supported by you know, young people and women very strongly and all the rest of it. And it was a change moment in Ireland. Um, I, I know that because of the number of people who told me I cried. I cried when I saw you up there on the television. I cried when I saw you inspecting the Guard of Honour. I cried, I cried. And you know then, you know, the depth of the emotion. But I was full of how am I going to fulfill what I have said in my inaugural address? I am a non-executive president. How do I do this? The presidency has been very hidebound and limited up to now. I've said I can change it. How? And I kept asking myself that question, even on the day of, uh, of my inauguration. How am I going to do this? But it meant I was kind of gearing myself up to make sure I did it better. But none of this showed on my face. Mm. I looked very confident. I gave my inaugural address uh, you know, as well as I could, determined. I was very... Uh, clear that as a woman inspecting the uh, Guard of Honour outside, that would be the moment when uh, women throughout Ireland and girls throughout Ireland would see a woman doing that and how important that was. So I didn't show that inside I was full of um, a kind of anxious sense. How am I actually going to do as well as I want to what I have promised the people of Ireland I will try to do? I'm wondering if you could speak a bit about uh, collaboration across uh, across countries and uh, participation in international organizations. So you've spent decades in uh, significant roles with organizations like the UN. Uh, we tend to see the particular importance of these organizations during times of crisis. And yet, uh, as you all know, we also, you know, as recently as this week, uh, see efforts like of President Donald Trump to withdraw the U.S. from the World Health Organization, which is a bit baffling. Uh, what do you make of of uh, you know the possibility of women to be able to rise above and collaborate with one another. Do you think that's something that's distinctly uh, feminine when it comes to leadership? Yes, I do. I mean, I've, I'm involved in so many uh, women's networks. Um, I, I, I laugh. I'm part of fearless women, connected women, dangerous women, and one that actually speaks to the very point you're making, um, a global women's leadership um, to be a voice for uh, change and inclusion. And this is women like myself, if you like, who've served as um, senior uh, political figures, but also took senior roles in the UN institutions. And we have formed a network. Um, uh, we are lobbying for uh, lots of things at the moment, for um, um, the women in Afghanistan, that in the peace process, uh, they must be at the table they must be able to speak up now that they've got some power. It mustn't be taken from them in the context of a, a peace process that um, allows America and the UK to withdraw from Afghanistan and leaves them at the mercy of the Taliban. Um, we're also you know, campaigning about 1325 issues, about climate issues, about other issues. And uh, so there's a lot of collaboration. Um, uh, it was what led us to establish the Council of Women World Leaders that you mentioned. That was in Stockholm in 1996. I was president at the time, and we decided that the outgoing president of Iceland, uh, who's a good friend, Vigdis Finnbogadottir, would become the first uh, president of the Council of Women World Leaders. But the point was to make visible that there were at the time a number of women 
who had been democratically elected president or prime minister of their country. That number has grown very significantly since then. So uh, we're still not there, but we've come quite a long way. So let's speak a bit about uh, COVID recovery and gender equality. So you mentioned earlier, you described COVID as a mirror that exacerbates inequalities. And we are certainly seeing this in Canada. Uh, We know that COVID has disproportionately affected already marginalized groups, including women and racialized populations. So we are seeing the gender gap widen and not close. So how can we strive to have recovery efforts move us towards equality? Well, let's just look at who is essential in a crisis like COVID. Mm. It is the essential workers, and they are the health workers, the care workers, the low-paid cleaners in hospitals, the low-paid bin removers of our waste, um, the essential services that keep things moving. Um, So in many ways, uh, quite a number of those jobs are held by women. Can we? think about how we revalue work and revalue, you know, how we come out of uh, the uh, recovery of COVID um, in in two ways, in a more inclusive way, um, looking at that, and also, and of course, I speak about this a great deal, in a way that ensures that we have a green uh, recovery with green new jobs, but also uh, nature-based jobs that uh, promote Uh, biodiversity and stop the erosion and extinction of species that we're responsible for at the moment. Uh, So you have an interesting vantage point where you are uh, getting to watch recovery efforts unfold around the world. Uh, Are there examples that you are seeing in terms of recovery efforts that that do what you're saying, revaluing uh, work that uh, deliberately address other goals such as reducing inequality or addressing climate change? things that perhaps Canada could be learning from. What stands out for you as being some of the best practices we're seeing around the world? Well, interestingly, I'm involved as chair of the elders, or I was already involved when I was an ordinary elder, if that's the way to put it, um, (laughs) with uh, the B team of business leaders who are uh, very key business leaders um, who are doing a lot of very thoughtful uh, messaging together about uh, coming out of COVID, but also even before COVID-19, the fact that we need a new social contract, that we need to think in terms of uh, companies that don't just prioritize shareholder value, but a wider stakeholder value, which is uh, their employees and their community. I have heard, I've sat in on discussions with B-team CEOs who discuss um, that it's wrong in COVID that there is a layoff of the lowest workers, the poorest workers, and that more senior management are not laid off as much. And they're actually advocating, lay off more senior management, furlough them, do what a, and keep as many of the low paid because they are ones that need the jobs more. Now, I'd never heard that conversation before. You know, it's a very interesting mm-hmm. new way of thinking about. And um, so I, I think that's, a, that's one example of a, um, of a good practice. I do think on the wider uh, planning for recovery um, that the European Union, if it fulfills what it is talking about actively, will give some leadership. It has a recovery package of 750 billion uh, euros, and it hasn't quite finalized deciding how that recovery package will, um, will work. 
they, they have to have a meeting this uh, in July face to face because they can't resolve it by Zoom, which I can understand. <laughs> it's very hard to resolve yes. things like that by Zoom. So that's the recovery package. And then they also have very ambitious uh, uh, climate uh, um, New Deal, uh, uh, Green Deal. Um, and it has, for example, a, a significant fund for just transition, meaning uh, the coal workers in particular in Europe, that they won't be left behind, that there will be money for retraining, money for helping to put new industry into communities that would otherwise be very affected by closing coal plants and, and, and winding down coal. Um, and then there is also a biodiversity strategy. Um, and I think they have to go hand in hand. It's not just Green New Deal uh, jobs of um, you know, refitting houses to make them more effective, um, travel issues, you know, etc. It's also um, nature-based solutions. The polling data would suggest that many Canadians feel that our government has responded uh, very well during this crisis, but also that uh, many Canadians are quite worried about our southerly neighbour, uh, the United States, as they see cases continue to climb. Uh, and so, I'm, you know, you've spoken very positively about this is a moment of openness and reflection where we are learning that behaviour matters and science matters and compassion matters. Are you feeling optimistic that, you know, around the world that we are taking advantage of the potential of this moment to really seriously address some of the problems that we face? I think it's too soon to say. Um, I, I remember when uh, the, the then chair of the elders, Archbishop Desmond Tutu, was accused of being an optimist. He was on a panel with me in New York in front of young people. <laughs> And he said, oh, no, he said, I'm not an optimist. I'm a prisoner of hope. And I think I'm more in that line, a okay. prisoner <laughs> of hope that we will uh, not waste this crisis because it's a very deep crisis. It is going to be difficult. The first thing we have to do is to have a recovery package that is as fair as possible in every country. The second thing is that we have to plan um, the recovery economically to be completely focused on the other crisis, which hasn't gone away, the climate crisis, and uh, have um, a focus on the green jobs and the biodiversity and nature-based solutions. And everything should be focused on that. Every, you know, every, uh, there should not be um, a bailing out of fossil fuel companies or fossil fuel subsidies or, you know, the, uh, the, there was a big summit today of the international um, energy agency uh, about um, uh, how the recovery should be. And there's a great pressure to get the International Energy Agency to commit completely to a world that stays at 1.5 degrees. It's almost there. It has moved a lot. That means very significant changes in how we power our societies, if I could put it that way. And we have to have a planned reduction in all fossil fuel, including, as the Secretary General Guterres said at that summit today, no new coal, no support for new coal plants and a complete wind down of coal. And then um, a, a, a similar wind down appropriately of, uh, of um, oil and gas. Um, and, that, and that's the way. But this isn't, uh, this isn't happening at the moment necessarily. For example, China, having started with the problem of COVID, has come out of it with a Chinese way of doing, and that means that it is reopening 
most of its economy. It's had a problem in Beijing, but it's mostly trying to reopen. And it's trying to fire up that recovery with new coal plants, completely against what the world needs. So we're not there. Uh, what is there is the opportunity to think differently, because if you look at business as usual, uh, which has been highlighted by this COVID mirror that I talked about, it was full of inequalities. Those inequalities have been exacerbated by COVID-19, but they were also leading us to um, a brick wall of the climate um, crisis. Uh, we were going to end up with a catastrophic situation which would not be a safe world for our children and grandchildren. It was kind of a crazy, crazy thing, but it was happening. And that's what had me so depressed last January. So, uh, I, you know, what we need to do is build on the reflection point that COVID has forced us into to really think, what, what is it to be human? I mean, look at Article 1 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. All human beings are born free and equal in dignity and rights. And I sometimes think, if only, if only, if that was our world, what mm -hmm. a world it would be. What a mm -hmm. world. And it would mean that we would know that we had rights, that we would respect the rights of others, that we would have dignity, and that nobody would be so dirt poor to be deprived of even knowing or understanding that, that they had any rights or any dignity. And that is a lot of people in the world today, and an increasing number because of COVID-19. So you've described this um, a couple of times as being an important reflection point. And as someone who has spent a career um, you know, fighting for human rights and as an advocate in so many ways, um, I'm wondering if you have any advice for Canadians who are maybe feeling a bit overwhelmed right now, certainly reflective, but in a moment where we have converging crises, you know, inequality in all forms, climate change, uh, political unrest, uh, layer on a pandemic, it can feel a bit overwhelming to people. So what advice would you have for someone who wants to take advantage of this reflection point, uh, be able to be a part of making uh, this kind of change? What should Canadians be thinking about in this moment if that's the place that they are in? Well, I have great sympathy for that feeling of being a bit overwhelmed because uh, this is not an easy period to be living through. I mean, uh, our lives have been so disrupted um, many people are very anxious about their personal situation, their financial situation, their mortgage, uh, their job, uh, their children, um, uh, you know, homeschooling, <laughs> all of that. Um, uh, it's not easy. Uh, but I think what we have to uh, try and encourage um, our governments and our cities and our uh, countries to do is to, uh, to lean in the right direction as we go forward. And the right direction is not to forget that other crisis, which uh, business as usual would not have uh, been able to deal with because it was not leading us to bending that curve on emissions. Um, that's, the, that's the bottom line. The more Canada can move in the direction of leadership on clean energy, on uh, uh, refitting houses so that they become uh, more energy efficient, um, uh, encouraging cycle paths, encouraging gardens and cities, um, encouraging reforestation, encouraging, and all of that has jobs that can go with it. It's, it's a case of, you know, how to prioritize. And I think it needs, um, it needs a population that says, um, we, we actually want that healthier future. One of the things that COVID has also 
um, had as a reflection point is the air is cleaner. We hear the birds singing. And we uh, suddenly realize uh, how polluted we were. Um, and now in Canada and in Ireland, where I am, we would have been less totally conscious of it. But still, in Dublin, I've been conscious of it. And I'm sure in Toronto and other cities in Canada, people have felt that the air has been cleaner. Nine million people die each year from air pollution. Um, that's more than the death toll of COVID um, at the moment. You know, the, it, so it's a very big um, a very big factor in the pollution that largely is caused by the emissions that power our economy if we don't switch to a different way. And uh, young people came out in their millions. I know they came out in Canada because I've been following the Fridays for Future and uh, Canada has great young people who've been looking for a different future. And they're right. You know, uh, they, they, they need to be supported in... Uh, finding the ways to uh, be entrepreneurial about new ways of living and doing um, and, um, you know, having exciting new jobs that are in tune with the fact that we have to live um, in harmony with Mother Nature. You don't know this, but you're speaking to a woman right now who is uh, nine months pregnant. Oh. And so certainly the future has been uh, on my mind. And well, lots I'm of going to have a grandchild. Feeling... I'm going to have a grandchild at much the same span. So I'm oh, very... right. okay. <laughs> my, se my seventh grandchild will Congratulations. be born at the end of August. So um, I couldn't be more in tune with you. <laughs> yes. Well, that's wonderful. But it, it's it's definitely a time where uh, thinking about the future is uh, is front of mind. And so I really appreciate your optimism and uh, and your hope for this moment that you've shared today. I think uh, many that's going to resonate with many people, and it certainly has with me. It's been an absolute honor to speak with you today. So on behalf of Canada 2020 and our listeners, thank you very much for making the time. And all the best in your own personal situation. It, it, it isn't easy in the time of COVID, as they say, but uh, it's a great hope for the future. Indeed. If you want more information about the Recovery Project, please visit us at recoveryproject.org. Thank you for tuning in, everyone. And until next time, take care and stay safe.